Hello and welcome to episode number 312 of the Armin Show podcast with so much in it as far as information, learning, the show continues to grow and we have books in the background at this time. On this episode, we have someone from very far away, Denmark, Copenhagen, if you will, and she is a postdoctoral researcher at the Natural History Museum of Denmark. We're going to get into that. We're going to get into some fossil discussion. Dr. Paige Madison, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you on here. Now, you are in Copenhagen. Before we get into the content, tell me how it is like living in Denmark. Is there any specific things you like about it or reasons that directed you there in the first place? Yeah, so uh, I really like it so far. I just moved here for a postdoctoral fellowship um, about seven months ago. So I had never visited uh, before. So moving during pandemic times was a little bit interesting, but that would have been the case anywhere. And uh, it's been fun so far. So um, the reason I'm here is because the Natural History Museum Denmark uh, is building a new museum facility. So we're the last few years have been spent sort of bringing together a few different museums, a zoological museum, a geological museum, and the botanical gardens, all under the umbrella of this one thing, but they've still been located at different locations across the city. And so now we've got this big building project um, with this exciting new museum going on, a bunch of it's being built underground, and it's going to be, you know, 100% brand new with seven new permanent galleries, and one of them is a human origins gallery. So I've been brought on as an assistant curator here. So it's an exciting time. <laughs> this is cool. A combination of multiple entities into one larger one. Yeah. Botanical gardens are wonderful, by the way. I have to add that in there. I've been to a few and they're great. Yeah. Yeah. It's really fun. That's where my office is right now. It's a good place to have an office. <laughs> You're by the botanical gardens? Yeah. Technically in it. Yeah. It's really nice. <laughs> you are surrounded by flowers. Yes. <laughs> this is a cool thing. There's one cool one, South Coast Botanical Gardens here and then Huntington Gardens. I'm in Los Angeles. So there's various. Oh, nice nice garden spaces. Now, before you were there, how did you get to there from your earlier learnings or happenings? What was your path? Yeah, it was uh, quite interesting. So I, um, I think, so I did my master's and PhD at Arizona State University. And I worked across a couple different disciplines there. Um, my degree is in history of science. So I worked with the history of science department. But then also I was interested in the history of paleoanthropology. So I worked with the Institute of Human Origins and they were sort of really accommodating to have a historian come in and take classes with them and join reading groups and, and kind of work alongside them to really try to understand the field of human origins like on the front lines rather than just kind of trying to write a history from a distance, you know. Um, so I did that for a while and one of my projects within my dissertation was to look at um, I looked at controversial fossils, and one that I looked at in particular was um, the story of Homo fresiensis, which was discovered in 2004, so it was a bit of a recent history for me, but I got involved in that project, and again, I was fortunate to have some scientists um, let me on, let this historian like join the team and kind of come work with them, and so I spent a couple of years doing the field seasons with them at the cave um, on Flores in Indonesia, and uh, we have researchers coming and going all the time. And a couple of researchers came a couple of years ago who were working on this project uh, here in Denmark. Um, we have some of the dating from that cave in Indonesia happens here in Copenhagen. And so a geologist, Michael Story, came along with the museum director, 
Um, and they started talking about this new project and got me interested in it. So we all kind of met in this cave in Indonesia many years ago and then met again this year in Copenhagen after sort of talking about it for some time. But, um, but that's sort of the indirect path, but yeah. That's cool. Meeting in a cave, that's a special. Yeah, Where do you want to meet? This local cave right here. <laughs> I've never met people in a cave, but one day yeah. we'll have like a gathering. Eight o'clock, cave. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's like strangely not as strange for us, but then we take a step back and remember that it is quite strange. <laughs> Different. Yes. Now, controversial fossils. How can fossils be controversial, Paige? <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I guess that's one question I asked in my dissertation. There's many ways it turns out. Um, you can have fossils that are, I guess I would say like to answer that simply, con controversial fossils are often unexpected fossils. And there's many ways to be unexpected. The most common would be that you would find a fossil that doesn't fit like the combination of characters that you imagined for that time period or that location. Um, but there's, you know, tons of other variations, like it's just the wrong time period for what it looks like and all these things. Um, and so by that, I mean, when we, you know, when we try to fill in the story of human origins, um, which occurred over the last five to seven million years, uh, we sort of, we don't have a lot to go on. We have a ton more than we did even 30 years ago, let alone 50 or 100 years ago. But we have these, like, this very fragmentary fossil record. So from the beginning, scientists have really been trying to to fill it in with what they understand, like with what they can, right? So they kind of have to imagine a little bit about what some of these ancestors would have looked like, what combination of characters would have happened in order. So when the field of human origins started, for example, you had this question of like, what happened first? Did our ancestors stand upright and walk on two legs like we did? Or did these big brains grow first or like, you know, did these kind of, we have teeth that are different than some primates, did that happen first? And so when you find a fossil, you sometimes they would make guesses like, okay, we think maybe the brain came before the upright walking, but then sometimes you find a fossil that doesn't fit that. And so then they would kind of have to decide like, is this, is this really what we're looking at here? Is this an ancestor or is this something else entirely? And so that's kind of how you get the controversy, but there's, there's many different ways. And the Homo fresiensis one certainly drew up quite a few of those controversies in a bunch of different ways, but they're all unique as well in their own controversies. Hmm. How much would you say, if we had to throw in a percentage of the record appears to be not there or found yet, judging from what we have, well, how much like have we found would you say is that what yeah that's a tough one but but yeah, percent I mean, of the so total. little it's absolutely it's absolutely amazing i mean we have these like baby glimmers of light and that's not to say that paleoanthropologists aren't out there looking and aren't finding things at an unprecedented rate because they are and impressively paleoanthropologists in the last like 20 years have been applying a ton of new types of technologies and things to make this fossil discovery even happen at a more rapid pace and they're doing things more systematically. Um, and that's that's yielding a lot more. So we're not just kind of like randomly going out and looking like they were a hundred years ago, but instead teams are being very deliberate about what age the rocks are looking in, what, what area, what depositional environment. And that's definitely accumulating things faster, but still I would say we have like 0. 0.000, zero one I mean we just have so little like there you know there's certain slices of time that you can look at like for example 
in the four million year range, like four to five million years, we have like a couple, we have like one pretty good individual and then a couple of like maybe two individuals, depending on how you recognize some dating techniques and then a few like bits and pieces and like that's it. And that's in like South and East Africa and then there's just like nothing else. So there's like huge parts of the screen that are still kind of like black. Huh. Um, and yeah, huge areas that have gone unexplored and just so much more work to do. Uh, and so we're really just like starting to try to fill in pieces, but still making huge leaps across vast distances in time when we're trying to reconstruct the story of human origins. Interesting. For some reason, when I was asking that, I was thinking maybe like we found 70% of uh, the general, what we think <laughs> is important and 30% is still to be found. one <laughs> is much lower than that. Yeah, it's pretty low. And I think maybe I say that because someone did a study recently about like um, what percentage of like all of the animals that are on Earth now like might fossilize. And that's sort of informing this a little bit. Like it was very low. Like we would have like a handful of fossils if we just froze everything right, right. now. Um, because fo the fossilization process is so picky and so uh, it's so difficult to really have like good deposition. So the famous fossil Lucy is a great example. She's about 50 to 60% complete. She's a really, really nice specimen. That's like, for us, that's like, we throw a huge party for that. Yeah, like we get half a jawbone and we get excited. So we get like 50% complete. We're like, yes. And that's because she was, we got so lucky and she was kind of buried like near standing water and it didn't rush her around too much. You know, maybe it was like kind of by a lake bed or something and it just kind of like covered her over and allowed for the proper processes. <laughs> What? <laughs> we keep it real on this episode. Yeah. Just some books in the background. <laughs> That's funny. Maybe but um, yeah, go for it. <laughs> It'll make a showing on the next episode, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then the only other thing I'd say to like add to that 0.0001% is that I think that answer for me may partially be informed by the fact that a lot of the new discoveries that have been made in the last 10 years, especially, um, have, have really not like uh, been what we thought they were going to be. They've been really surprising and maybe even controversial. And so it's a constant reminder that like this narrative that we think we've constructed like is really simplified and there's actually a lot more out there that we just don't know. So the nature of these discoveries is just a constant reminder that we have a lot more work to do, I think. That makes sense. Maybe would there be a higher percentage of the steps in the tree the, the evolutionary tree where we can see this animal led to this, this led to this. Is that like, let's say 70% uh, accurate? Yeah, I mean, it kind of depends like where you're looking and which steps. And, and when you have such a partial record, it's hard to sort of fit things. Like, I guess maybe I'd think like within a tree, like, okay, this is definitely ancestral to this, uh, which is ancestral to this. Like that gets really hard when you start to like, um, you know, when you start to kind of put the picture together. And again, one of the things that's been happening in the last few years is that these discoveries have come out that show us it's not always gonna be that direct of a, of a relationship. 
Um, so for example, so Lucy is another good example. So she kind of fit this time slot of about like 3 million years old. And you have a couple things that are a little bit older than her at 4 million and some things that are quite a bit younger at like 1 million. And so it was easy to make an assumption like maybe she was, her species was ancestral to the later stages. But then just across the river, like 20 kilometers away, a different species was found um, living at the same time as her. And so now all of a sudden it's hard to tell like who's the ancestor and you know like you can't really draw that direct line anymore so like one thing we've definitely been learning is that it's really messy um and this does i you know i'd be interested to see numbers specifically but this does seem to be a problem a little bit unique to human origins so for i mean but i could be wrong like i'd love to talk to a paleontologist about this and there are the scales that the average like dinosaur paleontologist, for example, is working with is very different. Like we're working within five to seven million years. Sometimes they're working with, you know, 200 million years. Um, so sometimes maybe they're just not concerned about gaps the way we are. But it seems that sometimes they have slices like sometimes I look at the amount of Tyrannosaurus rex skeletons um, worldwide that exist, and I'm, I find myself a little bit jealous because it seems to me there's quite a few more like pretty complete ones than we have human ancestors, yet the T-Rex lived much longer ago in time. So some of that, again, is deposition. Some of it is exploration. Um, Africa being the place where a lot of uh, where a lot of human evolution happened, there, it's just a place that hasn't yet been explored to the extent, you know, if this had happened, if it just so happened that human origins had all occurred in Europe, probably would have dug a lot of it out already, because there's a lot of people in Europe digging around and looking for stuff, and that's been right. the case for a long time, but it's just now kind of um, really getting into Africa in a very systematic way, so. Hmm. I've noticed in different categories, like, there will be areas that are key for certain types of research, or there's areas that are key for certain types of uh, group efforts, or there's areas that are key for some mineral. Are there, what are some key areas that have existed where there's a chunk of fossils? There's just more than other places. Yeah, so that's a super good question. Um, and there's a couple of good examples. So it depends is kind of the answer. But the, the classic example is in Eastern Africa, the Rift Valley. So that encompasses Tanzania, Ethiopia, Kenya, even a little bit into Malawi. And that's where, you know, that's where a lot of these famous discoveries are from. That's where Lucy is from. She's from Hadar in Ethiopia. And a bunch of other um, really big finds are from that area. And it used to be that it was, again, it's easy to sort of like draw the line between point A and point B. So to say like, okay, we're making all these finds here. Um, maybe that's the cradle of humankind. That's where it all started. And that's why we're finding them here. But the flip side that we learned in the last few years is we really have to turn that around and say like, is this where it was happening or is this just where it was preserved? And one of the reasons why the Rift Valley is so useful for fossils is that it's you know it's an active rift area so these tectonic plates are just pulling apart a few i can't remember what the numbers are a few centimeters a year or something quite rapid and so you end up with you know this rift these like almost there's areas that almost look like badlands and what that does is not only were the fossils well preserved but now they're being exposed and so in that area of africa there isn't even a lot of digging being done because it's kind of badlands area. It's really almost like sandy. It depends where you go for sure, but I'm thinking right now of Hadar in Ethiopia. 
And, you know, so the, the landscape is doing a lot of that excavation for you. So the teams are just going out and kind of like scouring the landscape, walking and paying really close attention, but they're not really having to like dig down. Um, and because the wind is always blowing and things are always happening, they can scour the same areas year in and year out. And they might find something that like, you know, was buried last year or would be swept away next year, that kind of thing. And so um, you just kind of have this like perfect environment where the fossils happen to be preserved and then now those layers are being exposed. Um, and then I'd say like, the so that's a really good site, uh, a really good area for that. We've got a lot of sites in Southern Africa that are almost the opposite. They, a lot of things look like they were washed underground in these crazy underground cave systems that um, exist. And then they were really well preserved there. And so once that was figured out in the 1930s or so, there was a lot of efforts to like look in those underground areas. So a lot more direct, you know, like they used to use dynamite back in the day to like blast apart parts of those caves. They don't do that anymore. <laughs> but, um, but so you've got those areas. And then where I've been interested in lately in Indonesia is sort of the last, I'd say like major example of that. There's, you know, there's sites all over, but as far as like the types of environments you're looking at, um, and that's caves. And so the type of, uh, you know, site that we're working with in Flores, it's the complete opposite of like this badlands, things are being exposed for you. Instead, what you have is this, in our cave, is this soft layer of, uh, you know, like a clay ground that actually goes down really deep, maybe 12 to 16 meters. And deep. yeah, and so it's been accumulating over time. And, you know, all these animals and bones and things have gotten, caught up in it and then now it's just kind of waiting for us to dig down so mm -hmm. again it sort of preserves it well but you do have to go in and kind of look for these and you know places like indonesia have caves all over that always provided good shelter and so you might have hominids coming in and out of them um, and hopefully you know you can you can find something preserved but what that does mean is that you've got sort of these pockets all over so and that's the case across europe um, and now even across like parts of Russia and China and stuff, we're just finding that there are just these, you know, we get, again, these snippets of things that were happening and just trying to piece them together for this whole story. Hmm. Ethiopia makes me think of that there's, I think one of the world's largest dams is there and it's huge. And I saw it on Google Earth or Google Maps. <laughs> Sometimes I look on Google Maps, different areas to see what large things are visible. Oh, nice. I haven't seen that. <laughs> it's, it's like the something, I don't have the name of it. But when you go to places to look for fossils, is it often one person? Is it a group? What kind of materials do you take? How does that done? Yeah, it totally depends. And it's changed a lot over the course of human evolution. So back in the day, you know, I used to give some history lectures about people going out and doing this. And it was a little bit random you know, like in the early 1900s, that kind of thing. It was just someone kind of heading out where they thought they might find something. And it was often quite a bit alone. And, um, and it wasn't until like the 1920s that these things started to become like bigger projects uh, and um, things that were backed by money. And that's not always the case now. You definitely get a lot of variation, but that's the most effective way to do it. So it's really nice if you can get like a National Science Foundation grant or something just for prospecting. Um, and when you do that, you definitely go out with a smaller team most of the time. Uh, and then you would kind of just look around for evidence that this is a good site. 
And so, for example, where I work in Indonesia, we're still just digging at like the Hobbit cave, but there has been work kind of scouting and prospecting around other caves in Indonesia. And the first question you're trying to ask is like, do we see any evidence that anyone was here? Like, is there any archeological preservation, um, even if that's like very modern humans? And what we're actually looking for is like a much deeper level you know, we're hoping there's many meters down and we're hoping that there were other species living there like a long time ago, but we get that first indicator up at the top. So then you would start excavating and we have a bunch of questions about those modern humans living at the site, but if we really hit the jackpot, then you kind of keep going and you've got a good cave site. Um, but that depends on the area as well. Like for example, in Ethiopia near Hadar, um, where they found Lucy, there was a period of time where the team over there was looking for, they, they knew we kind of had this like, you know, we had this period of time from about 2 million years to about like 2.8, 3 million years, where we didn't have a lot of fossils from the area. So what they did was they said, we want, we want to figure out like what was happening there. So they were able to do geological surveys and find out that like, okay, there are certain areas that preserve these types of rocks. We'll focus on those areas. And then they went out with like, you know, fairly small, but still like good sized teams. I don't know, maybe 20 people or so. And they did field seasons where they were just looking. And they did the, you know, and often you're finding a lot of other fossils in these kinds of scenarios. So maybe pigs or, um, you know, like ancient antelopes or something, like something that's telling you preservation is happening. And you're like, okay, that's really exciting. Mm -hmm. But hominins are very rare on the landscape. So it's not uncommon that you would get thousands of other animals before you get a single bone of a human ancestor. So you've got to be really patient. You've got to believe that you're in the right place. And in this um, instance, this is the site of Lady Guerrero that I'm thinking of. Uh, I think it took them almost 10 years before they found indeed half a hominin jawbone from that exact time period that they had been looking for. Um, but it kind of, I, I bring up that example because it's like, it's a patience game for sure. Um, and they're still out there and they're still looking. And in the meantime, they've learned a lot about the, that environment and like what was going on in Eastern Africa during that time. But, you know, we still haven't found like, the golden, you know, the next Lucy or something like this. Um, so it definitely depends. And then sometimes it's luck as well. Uh, and we see a lot of that, you know, especially across Indonesia, um, where a farmer's plowing a field or something, and then like a skull pops out of the ground. Um, that actually happens a ridiculous amount in Indonesia. It was a problem for a long time because the farmer- I found another skull. Yeah, yeah, like what do we do with it? And they would just like bring it to the scientific center and the center would be like, oh no, like, we want to like see where it came from because we need the rest of that information. Like we want the geologic layer and we want all this, you know, we want all the context because it all matters. It all helps like put the story together and get dates on it and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, so there's still like a wide range. Um, and even actually the Hobbit cave that I work at uh, is an interesting example of that. So they were excavating there for decades, um, you know, this big cave and it had like all these archeological finds, but it was all modern human. Um, they had no reason to believe there was anything else going on there. They were just, they were actually looking for evidence of the first modern humans to come across Indonesia into Australia. And so they were like hoping they would find stuff that was really old, but you know, they were, they were working on a modern human site. And it wasn't until they broke through like some really deep layers and they started to find out that there was a completely different group of animals living there. 
um, at a certain time period, and then it turns out one of them was a hominin, a non-human human ancestor, basically. Um, but it was completely unexpected. Like no one, you know, no one wrote a grant proposal saying like we're going to find a new species. <laughs> so sometimes you get lucky. That's funny. That'll be an unplanned item. Yeah. Two things that come to mind related to hominids: how easily, if you saw a bunch of fossils, would it be to point out, oh, okay, this is from this organism, this is from this, and connected to hominids, uh, what has our learnings about human fossils taught us about the current moment? Like, do you see people and have a sense of like, you have this bone because of this? Yeah, I mean, we've got like a pretty good, I'll, I'll answer those like in reverse, I guess. So we've got like a pretty good understanding of like, you know, how we got to this point in general um, compared to other animals. And part of that's like what we would call like comparative anatomy. So we can look at like gorillas and chimpanzees and other living close relatives and say like, okay, here are some of the differences. We kind of like, we kind of have the endpoints, which is nice. It means that you have to fill in the rest of it, but at least the endpoints do provide some like pieces of data. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's really helpful. Um, and it's just about working backwards from those endpoints. So then to answer the first part of that question, um, you know, I think ultimately like it comes down to a question of training. <laughs> so a lot of the paleoanthropologists who are identifying these bones have done this for a really long time and worked, you know, an unbelievably amount, number of hours on these projects um, in order to really get a really good idea of like what it is you're looking at. And so they would have studied like every detail of, you know, that part of the anatomy and they would have compared tons of human bones with tons of like gorillas and chimpanzees and then all the fossils that we can find. And I would say that um, paleoanthropologists now, like in 2021, are in a slight advantage over, you know, 50 years ago because we do have more of those bones to compare it to. So it's not just like, a chimp and gorilla and a modern human and you're trying to like fill in this whole story you do have other pieces to like play off of which can confuse it but can work really well um and the other thing is too is that in the last like hundred years of paleoanthropology one thing we've seen is like a dramatic specialization so scientists you know kind of used to look at the whole body or you know like have these broad views of like science and nature and now you really get a lot of like you know, someone that specializes just in the base of the skull or someone that specializes just in the pelvis or the arm or the hand or the wrist. Um, and so that kind of helps in that that person has just spent, you know, years, if not decades, just completely focused on that question. Um, and then they can be brought in when you, you know, are lucky enough to find some wrist bones or something like this. Uh, and that really helps. But, it, you know, it is an ongoing discussion and you will get like a team publishing an interpretation and then other teams really still battling back. Um, and that's partially because a lot of these bones are still really fragmentary. So there is room for interpretation. Um, and then because the story itself is fragmentary, you are still, you know, you're sort of having to make some assumptions and make some guesses and not all groups, all paleoanthropologists necessarily agree with the ones others are making. But for the most part, like we're accumulating knowledge as the field grows and you have a bigger sample to compare it to, I would say. Paleoanthropologists are having real conflict, okay? They are battling yeah. 
Yeah, it's a very conflict-heavy field. It has been for a very long time. Yeah. yeah this kind of no, it's this kind of bug. Do you hear me? Yeah. yeah. Pretty good. One thing that I think of in the current time is we have computing and maybe artificial, not artificial intelligence. Am I thinking that? Yeah, or machine learning. But is there systems that are in place where when new items are found, they are put into a large schema and then maybe a computer will fit it in like it's perfectly fits in right here. Do we have that? Uh, yeah, we have, we have like, you know, technology doing things that we couldn't ever imagine doing. Um, so there's still, you know, if you're talking about like fitting in like a body plan or something like this, there's still a lot of room for interpretation. So it's the same with machine learning. You know, we have to constantly remind ourselves that humans trained these machines. And so you see that a lot with like programs being run in paleoanthropology, you know, they run this like, these beautiful analyses, but the question is kind of like, okay, what assumptions went into those analyses um, and how did that like dictate the results? Um, so I'd say like, there's still a lot of work to be done there, but there is like possibilities that we haven't had before. So again, a lot of the bones that are found are really partial depending on the environment that they were found in. And you've seen these like beautiful CT reconstructions in the last few years of things like a crushed pelvis or you know, even more interestingly, like a skull that was like in a hundred pieces or more, and that you just, you would have, it would have taken a lot of interpretation to do that by hand, maybe 30 years ago, but now you've kind of got like some numbers to help you put it together and get a better idea of like how all these pieces fit. Um, and those aren't programs that I've run, so that's about as much detail that I can give. But then I will also say that, you know, those, um, like a lot of these technological, uh, advances have given us like different ways to understand the fossils. So when you kind of went through that scheme, like one thing that was running through my mind is uh, this new technology called like ZoomMS. And it, you know, they're running these like fragments of bone that are not identifiable. Like they're just, they're basically like specs and they're pulling them from, you know, sites that have all kinds of mammals, birds, like rats, anything like is, you know, has been incorporated into the sediment. And then they can run it and find out that, oh, like some of these are human and they can run things like protein analysis or DNA analysis and then find out a bunch of information. So they've been doing that with some Neanderthal ancestors and relatives and some other human groups. And so that's just been like, almost science fiction because if you see the actual bone that a ton of information comes from it's completely unidentifiable it's just this tiny tiny fragment and yet we're learning a bunch about the human past from it so it is it is happening rather rapidly and then also we're seeing that with ancient dna like a ton of different types of ancient dna research and one that came out in the last few years is that they're able to pull dna from cave dirt so let's say that like neanderthals lived in a cave when they were sweating and losing hair and going to the bathroom or whatever, they were shedding DNA constantly. And so if they were like spending a lot of time in that cave, then that DNA gets incorporated in the soil, even if none of their bones are. So sometimes there have been cases where, you know, they've pulled, they've been able to like pull together and see a bunch of Neanderthal DNA and get some information from that genome, even though we don't have any Neanderthal bones from that site, which is just amazing. <laughs> it's really nice. That is action-packed and something we would not have thought of in the first place. Yeah. Like microscopic level. Yeah. One thing that comes to my mind is, so I'm Armin, right? And I'm Armenian, kind of, and from Iran. And one time I looked up my name and there was Arminoid, which was like a type 
like uh, the the bones type from that area is there different like body head shape models from different parts of the earth for people yeah so there there is something that to some extent there's always going to be variation and we see that across biology any population um, the genome is constantly sort of reinventing itself and recombining characters in these new ways and um, there are mutations every generation and things are just always changing and so you're never going to be 50% of one parent and 50% of the other, you're going to be this interesting mix that has these new mutations. And so as a result, when you look across a population, you see tons of, um, tons of variation. So all these different head shapes, heights, skin colors, hair colors, eye color, all of these things. Uh, but one thing that has become clear in the last century or so of paleoanthropology is that while to some extent, these differences can exist within a population, that population for those to exist like long term. So, for example, let's say that like, um, you know, there's a population of people living on an island that end up being relatively short. Um, in order for that to sort of take hold in the population, that group has to be isolated. So they have to really, you know, not come into contact with other breeding groups and you know otherwise you're kind of starting to get this like meshing across where you can't identify so i guess what i'm trying to say is that like yes we do see population differences but one thing we've noticed is that it's harder and harder to like map those onto specific groups um, and that's what scientists have tried to do in the past and it's what they tried to do early with race science they tried to like put things in buckets like you know these people from Africa look like this and these people from America look like this and what we're finding is no there was exchange all the way through and so all of those categories there are no strict lines and boundaries and if that's the case then the categories themselves don't hold up so you might see some variations and you might see some trends going in certain ways but particularly what's interesting is in 21st century uh, you know, globalized society, you have so much movement and crossover that, you know, these pictures are getting, yeah, really messy. And one thing we're learning the more ancient DNA studies we're doing is that humans have always been like this. They've always been migrating, they've always been mixing. And so the story is actually really fascinating in this messy, complex way, rather than, you know, um, rather than something that you can fit in kind of like types or something like that. So it makes it a little bit harder to like, you know, say for sure, like, oh, we see these characters in this part of the world and this one, because often, like anytime you might make those identifications, you might, like you can find an example of the opposite as well. Like that would sort of disprove the rule. Um, so we've, we've kind of messed it up by being too mobile. <laughs> and that's a very human characteristic. We're just like not pleased to be in one place we want to explore we want to get out and yeah and uh it makes the evolutionary story more complicated i think that's true i remember reading a book that was about uh risk taking and like uh certain genes were connected with propensity to travel or go to a far-off destination and then the risk-taking people would end up in that far-off destination because that was the only people that went there so that's kind of a cool feature i like risk-taking yeah. Yeah. yeah in the field of fossils and examining bones are there any people that you have looked to as like representative individuals or that you value uh what they do a lot maybe they were not living or living 
Oh, wow, that's a good question. Uh, so many. <laughs> um, you know, there's been some really interesting uh, work done across the globe um, over the last, you know, 150 years of human evolution. And it's really easy, I think, to sometimes point to like some of what we would, con what we used to consider kind of like founding fathers and like really big explorers. Um, but one thing I've learned as a historian is the more you dig under those stories, the more you see some of the problems with the history of this science and then some of the opportunities we have for changing it. And so by that, I mean, you know, we kind of have these classic um, discoverers uh, that used to sort of make up the beginnings of textbooks, you know, this was the father of this field. And, and one thing we're learning across science in general is that there is no one, right? These are communities. And, you know, sometimes there's a Darwin or someone that gets kind of held up. Um, and what they do is often a big contribution, but even Darwin himself would say that there's just kind of like one, you know, um, that's just one piece of a larger story and that everything he did, he built on those who came before him and really borrowed from their ideas. And so for a more concrete example, it's really, um, you know, it's really easy to look at a big fossil discoverer, like a man named uh, Eugene Dubois found Java Man back in the 1890s. And that, he was a really interesting case because he basically set out from the Netherlands and said, you know, I'm going to go find like a missing link. And I think maybe one can be found in Asia. And, um, and uh, he went looking and lo and behold, his team found one. So it's a homo erectus skull. It's, it really does help fill in a little bit of story. And it's just a great story of like the beginnings of the discipline where you, you know, had, we didn't really have very much uh, as far as ancient fossils. And then all of a sudden this, you know, mission to go out finds one and so that's kind of like the narrative that has been repeated over the years but one thing that has become very obvious is i've been studying the history and as the world is changing and the kinds of questions that we're asking is changing is we noticed that you know a lot of the work that he was done was built on the colonial roots of this history so like a lot of natural sciences paleoanthropology is built on kind of imperial channels and ways of doing things and ways of knowing and that had real consequences so for example the only reason he went to java to look for this skull was because the dutch um, had colonial power over indonesia and while he was there he employed a bunch of workers who uh, owed taxes to the Dutch government. And a lot of the work they were doing was kind of backbreaking and really hot and a couple of people died and they never got named in like publications. And so I bring all this up because, you know, that the picture of like, you know, someone who's like a fossil discoverer is often much more complex. And, you know, I think historians like myself the last few years have been working really hard to, um, really tried to like figure out how much of that narrative we can rewrite and all the stuff that's happening now we can do a much better job with right like we can be working across communities and trying to like break down those imperial legacies but also we can do basic things like giving credit to the person who actually found the skull which was not that man Eugene Dubois he got it was sent to him in the mail he was not present for the finding yet he gets all the credit yeah and so uh so like given that like long tangent I'd say um, one of my colleagues uh, at, the, at the site that I work most at in Flores in Indonesia, a, name man, a man named Benjamin Tarus would be one of my um, biggest heroes in that field. So he is the person who found the original type specimen of Homo Christiansis, one of the fossils I'm interested in. 
um, uh, the type specimen's name is LB1, and he found it one day when they were excavating six meters below the ground. And it's a really interesting story, but like not only was he the discoverer, but he actually has been at the site for a very long time. So his dad's been working at the site since the 1970s, um, and he's been at the site since the early 2000s. And he has just, you know, rather than like going in and like, you know, if we compare him, which is kind of an unfair comparison, but like, as an example, if we compare him to like a Eugene Dubois who just like comes in, spends some money, hires some like kind of imperial prisoners and makes this discovery, like Benjamin is the complete opposite in that, of course, he's part of this team, he's working collaboratively, um, but also he's spending a lot of time at one site, he's spending a lot of time carefully removing layers of dirt, look, paying attention to the context, and the whole time gaining this knowledge. And I think that's a big thing that wasn't done in the early history of this field. You have these people coming in from imperial centers to find fossils and then leave really quickly. And again, you lose a lot of the information when you do that. And so I think Benjamin's a great example of someone I really look up to because he not only you know is making finds, but his knowledge of the area is is so you know careful and and he's really put in the time, the years uh, to like to really understand everything that's going on from like one little layer of clay to the next, um, and that's kind of what I look for look for as far as you know um, people in the field. This is a cool feature because it's the difference between connecting the credit to the doers who build or put in effort over time versus individuals who are more absorbing efforts of doers, let's say. And then the link is not really as sharp. So it's not as interesting yeah. anyway for them too. Let's say I say congratulations to the guy. I didn't really find it, but I'm going to take the credit for it. It's not the same. But when the guy actually puts in the effort and understands it or whoever, it's like, oh, okay, that's connected to it. There's a, there's a nice connection here. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of, you know, this is a whole web of like uh, the sort of like imperial legacy that's been left on the field. And it, you know, it goes so much deeper than credit, of course. It goes, like you say, like breaking down those lines. And that's something the team that I've observed um, really works really hard at, at that site in, in Indonesia. And a lot of teams across the world are trying to do um, a much more conscious effort uh, on, and there's still a lot of work to be done, but like, how do we, you know, like, we don't need, you know, it does, it's not like, it's not really a team effort if you have like local excavators who like find the thing and then like scientists who interpret it. How do we make that more collaborative? And how do we provide training, scientific training to the people who want it? And then, you know, how do we like make all of this research that's going on at this site become more useful to the fabric of the community around the site and all these questions of like exchange, which weren't asked when a lot of a lot of these original finds were um, were made. And so there's there's really being an effort to try to shift that a little bit, I think. One visual that came to my mind when you were describing the process is I had seen this one picture of an iceberg and like 10% of the iceberg is on top and 90% is on the bottom. And that 10% is like maybe in the sun and shining and brightening. And that's an iceberg and there's a problem. But 90% of the heft of it, all the work, all the collaborative energy, the people reaching out, mistakes, problems, this didn't work. Oh, anguish between this. Oh, actual life things happen to somebody. It's all underwater. And then that's not the amazing headline or informative article 
that is seen or the picture of like, look what we did. Wow. But so like 14,000 things had to happen underneath. Yeah. But that won't, you can't post, you can't showcase that because why would you do that? That's just the, to me, that's yeah. the cool part because the other part, yeah. it was going to happen or it, you'd, you'd locate it at some point visual there. Yeah, yeah, no, no, totally, I agree. Uh, and I think, like, as a historian, I'm much more interested in incorporating the rest of that iceberg and, like, you know, telling the story that doesn't end up in those scientific journals necessarily. And a great example of that, like, on one level, there's multiple levels, but is um, the site where we excavate in Indonesia. It's actually a, um, it's a beautiful cave, and so it's a tourist site. So people come there, you know, non-COVID times, people come there 365 days a year. And it just so happens that about two months out of the year, we're digging there. And so usually they're quite delighted to see like this excavation. But of course, their question really early on when I sort of introduced them to what we're doing there is um, like, why aren't you guys here? Like, what do you mean you're only here for two months? And, you know, I have to remind them, like, we, we, a lot of us teach at universities, like, a lot of us, we have to write grants to, like, do all of this work, and that, like, grant writing itself takes a while, and then, importantly, we have to analyze everything that gets found. So, at that cave, particularly, you've got all sorts of bones, you've got mammal bones, you've got a lot of rat bones, um, and a lot of the discovery really happens later, um, when everything goes back to the lab, and you have time to sort through it. And it's not even like the 10 months of the rest of the year is really enough to do that work. Like we still have like backlog after backlog. So, you know, like the, um, I, and I think with one of the silver linings of COVID, it's been really difficult, I think, on the science and on a lot of people personally. But I think in one of the small, small silver linings is that sometimes you have a minute to try to like catch up. If you do have access to those collections, then you can like, try to work with those questions that you didn't have time for because like you say like that's where a lot of stuff happens and we're seeing that all across the field and even pre-covid we're seeing people going into museum collections to fossils that were found many years ago decades ago and like applying new technologies to them and learning these big things and so it's not always about you know that big hero discovery um, though those are great, but there's a lot of other stuff happening that's like super crucial to filling in the story. Yes, I, I refer to it as expansion than consolidation periods. And so we have these like short, we don't even need that ex extensive expansion. And then it's about the consolidation, bringing it together. What have I figured out? How's this connected things? And if you leave out the consolidation period and you just kept going on expansion periods, Nothing would come of it. You were just like, wow, this was interesting. Okay, that was interesting. And then uh, 10 years later, I didn't put anything together. I haven't. Yeah, you have a bunch of stuff, but you wouldn't thing. necessarily know what it was, what you could say about it. It was already stuff too before I, uh, I even did it or went there. It was, yeah. I just yeah. kind of uh, stimulation, I guess. That's kind of funny. Yeah. What is a message you would want all people to know about fossils or the museum or your research? Um, can I get, can I have two? Yes. <laughs> you know what? In August of 2021, we are allowing for two of these. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. So the first one is kind of the point I've been like just bringing out a little bit is that the field and like a lot of sciences in general, we have a long way to go as far as making this work um, uh, equal across communities globally. And the question of human origins is a global question. And so it is of interest to a wide amount of people. And it is, it, you know, it involves, 
you know, knowledge from a large amount of people. And we really have to work harder, I think, to, um, to make it so that there are less barriers for people of, for example, non-Western educations or non-Western countries or um, to be able to access this knowledge and to become involved because um, it be once they do, it becomes a much richer story. It's a, you know, it's a much, it's a much richer experience for everybody involved. So we have to make conscious effort. You know, as a historian, one thing I see is that, um, you know, we, we kind of think that maybe like we're post-colonial, that the colonial era is over. And actually like one thing we've been learning in the United States in the last couple of years is that that's really not how it works. These systems are really deep. Um, and we have to, we can't just like say that we're colorblind or that we are past that or something like this. We actually have to work really hard to overturn them because a lot of work went into making these systems. So we have to really ask ourselves like what actions can we take? So that's kind of my first message is we have to really be aware and we have to actively work on overturning those. And there's tons of ways to do this. There's a lot of efforts in decolonizing science right now. There are some efforts in trying to make funding um, spread more widely across groups internationally. There's some efforts to work on like asking questions about how we can translate things out of English sometimes, um, because that's something that like prohibits access to large groups of people and things like that. So there's some really good efforts for decolonizing science and I would recommend people looking into those and starting to get involved. And then my like more fossil focused message would be that like, you know, I think these human ancestors are absolutely fascinating. And I was one of those kids who grew up um, just loving dinosaurs and thinking that Tyrannosaurus Rex was absolutely the coolest thing. And while I still think that's true, I think it's a shame that we haven't been able to get to that same point or even like a similar point with our own close ancestors. You know, I think that if we do a better job with communicating the science and if we work really hard to get people involved, I think there could be a day where people could be as excited about a Lucy specimen as they are um, you know, maybe a Tyrannosaur, even though, of course, those are very large and impressive. But I think these, you know, these objects that are that tell us so much about who we are and where we came from, I think they could hold a lot more power than they currently do. And I think that's something we could and should continue to work for. That makes sense. Long live the human ancestors <laughs> that came to where we are today. Yes. Dr. Page. Madison, I would like to thank you for having come on the show, informed us about fossils and some of the historical record and given us guidance. Thank you for having me. It was fun. You know, and we are out. <laughs>